guest is Sean Hunter, a best-selling author, serial entrepreneur, speaker, husband, father, and bicycling enthusiast. Sean Hunter currently works as president of Mindscaling, a business based in Yarmouth, Maine that designs and builds leadership learning experiences for other companies around the globe. I spoke to Sean Hunter by phone on April 4th, 2020. Welcome, Sean Hunter. Well, welcome. Thank you. Sean, I read your latest book, Chasing Dawn, an adventure of three fathers and four teenagers bicycling across America on Sunday, and I really loved it. It describes an amazing two-month-long journey across the country in 2018 that you took with your 16-year-old son, Charlie, and two other dads and their kids. And I guess I'd like to start the conversation by just asking what, if anything, can you draw from that experience as you wait out the pandemic? Wow. You know, when you invited me to do your podcast, I was thinking to myself, boy, I wonder what Cynthia's going to want to talk about. But now that you want to talk about the bike trip, that is a fantastic escape right now in my mind to go back to the summer of 2017 and myself and two other fathers, we took four teenage kids and we flew to Seattle. Imagine that. We flew to Seattle <laughs> and we unpacked our bicycles on the front lawn of my friend Jason's house up in Seattle. And we rode almost 4,000 miles in two months back to Yarmouth, Maine. And it was an absolutely incredible, exhilarating indelible experience and when I use the word indelible what I mean is each day of that journey is etched in my mind I can sit at the kitchen table with my son who was he was 16 at the time who went on the trip and we can recount every single day every road the weather where we stayed and you know I couldn't really tell you what I did two weeks ago although although I knew Two weeks ago, we were in the middle of this mess. So to answer your question, what, what can I draw from that whole experience? Well, I keep thinking of this, sen- of this sense of realistic optimism. And so when we were on the bike trip, well, we didn't have any choice. You know, there's no choice. There was no option. We're not flying home. We're not hitchhiking. We're getting up every day, and we're going to go to work. And we know there's going to be a beginning, and there's going to be a middle, and there's going to be an end. And the only way you get to the end is you get up and you solve problems and you work through the adversity of the day. And it just is like any other day. It has highs and lows and elations and, and challenges and things break and people get mad and sometimes people get hurt. So I, I guess if I had to draw an analogy, it would be that kind of sense of adversity and perseverance in recognition that there is an end. Now, in the book, after describing some of the challenges of crossing the arid plains of the Midwest in search of water and the desolation, you wrote that we swear like sailors now. And there's a reference uh, to a study from the Netherlands reporting that profanity is associated with less lying and deception at the individual level and with higher integrity at the social level, which kind of cracked me up. So I'm curious, do you believe there is a correlation between swearing and honesty? <laughs> and are you, are you swearing your way through the quarantine? <laughs> uh, well, I just believe the studies I read. 
and, I, and if I'm suspect, I read more studies to back it up. But it, but yeah, it makes sense. You know, if you're in a real tribal situation, like let's say I don't know, let's say you're locked in quarantine <laughs> and, and with the same three or four or five people. Yeah, I think uh, kind of a tribalism emerges in a way of speaking, in a way of interacting, in a vernacular that can be shorthand and brusque. And so it's true. Like when we were on that bike trip, we would spend hour after hour after hour together on these back roads through Wisconsin and Minnesota and South Dakota. And we would swear and sing. And then we, as soon as we stepped into a restaurant, again, imagine that. <laughs> we could turn it off. We could turn it off and behave like normal humans. Um, and I and there was a, a very strong bond among us that endures to this day. Before you were the president of Mindscaling, your current company, and, and creating leadership courses, you used to interview hundreds of leading business authors, executives, and business school faculty as a product developer for Skillsoft, the company that bought your first company, Targeted Learning. I guess I'm wondering what interviews stand out, if any, in your mind, and why? Oh, boy. Uh, it's true. I, I did get to interview lots and lots of really interesting people, and it was, it was pretty exhilarating. It's pretty fun. If, if, you ha- if you come to it with truly an open mind, I mean, I, th- I think... Early in my interviewing process, I don't know, 15 years ago or so, I was kind of overwhelmed and I felt like an imposter and I was really like blown away by whoever I was interviewing that I would try to impress them. You know, I would try to impress them by saying something important. And I learned later that it, it's really better to, to ask a simple question and shut up and, and let them tell their story. Okay, to answer your question, I once interviewed um, – a guy named Gene Klein. And Gene Klein is a Holocaust survivor. He's got, at the time I interviewed him, he was 87, I think. That was probably three years, three, four years ago. He's got to be in his early 90s now. Uh, And his daughter, Jill Klein, wrote a book about their family's experience through the concentration camps. And Gene Klein, um, he went into... Auschwitz when he was 16 and he watched he, he, he was with his father when, when they uh, got off the trains oh. uh, I'm just re- recollecting that interview now and and his fa- the guards nodded at his father to go one way and nodded at him to go a different way and he didn't understand in that moment uh, what it meant but wow. anyway so, so to this day he they wrote a book. Um, it's called We Got the Water. We Got the Water. And you can surmise what that might mean, but but, but look, at, look it up. Um, and to this day, Gene Klein, from his home, I believe in Florida, uh, still does podcasts and interviews. And when this thing shakes open again, he'll go back to uh, telling stories about his experience through adversity. So there. There's a memorable interview. What do you think is um, what do you think is the secret? I mean, do you think there like for instance, how do, what question should I ask of Sean Hunter to elicit the best, most interesting story? Oh boy, I don't know. You do a very good 
job of kind of jogging my memory, you know, jogging things that that, will shake loose in my mind. I mean, at this moment, in the past few days, I keep thinking about this question that was posed to me. Here's the question. Who who do I want to be during COVID-19? Who do I want to be? And you're like, wait a minute, who do I want to be? Because just the very framing of the question suggests that I have a choice. You know, I have a choice about how I show up and how I interact and how I how I commit myself with intention to every interaction. It's not it's not like what's going to happen to me, what is going to happen in the world, what is out of my control. The question is, who do I want to be? And then if you frame it in that way, well, you know, do you want to be operating from a place of fear, you know, hoarding and ang- spreading anger and, and frustration or, or overwhelmed by consuming too many toxic things like too much news and too much junk food and too much alcohol and too much, you know, all these toxins? Or do you want to show up with intention to, and this is by extension where I'm getting, which is you want to start by first taking care of yourself. You know, everybody knows even during this craziness, it's important to set a routine. And then once you take care of yourself and those around you, where you find the most meaning is in your ability to contribute socially. And that's stressful. And, you know, you wonder what can I do and how can I help? And But if you, if you set that intention of helping others, you're in search of finding meaning. And meaning is more important right now than trying to find happiness because happiness is really elusive right now. You have been a speaker and a consultant to big, big companies like Microsoft, Starbucks, Boeing, Canon, um, the Treasury, uh, Scotiabank. The list goes on and on. And I'm wondering when, first of all, you made a crossover from interviewing to presenting information. And I'm just curious, what, what caused you from going from being an interviewer to now presenting information? Was it just an accumulation of of expertise over time, or was there something personal that changed your role? Oh, I thought I had something to share. I I probably got to a point where I had interviewed a lot of people. And and then once you interview a lot of people in in entrepreneurial spaces and uh, scientific backgrounds or or, or MBA faculty, there's a lot of repetition of, of what they're saying across different domains and there's themes. And I started to recognize these themes and I thought, huh, well, I got something to say. <laughs> so, so I started, you know, constructing messages that were powerful and important to me personally. You know, as, as they say, there's that old adage, uh, you teach what you most need to learn. So, so I, I share ideas that I believe that I personally need the most for myself and the people around me. But I mean, all those big companies that, that I work with, they're full of just people. They're just, they're just people like anyone else with the same kinds of problems and adversities. So, and I also find if, if anybody's listening to this little piece of advice, I've increasingly found it important to share ideas that resonate from a personal perspective like you you intertwine your own personal narrative and how your piece of advice you can back it up with science and data but people will quickly get bored by that 
but back it up with your own personal experience and narrative and stories of moving through that particular piece of adversity. Is there like a formula to your presentations? Like when you make quiche, you know, you always have the basic <laughs> formula of a crust, a filling, a cheese. Um, they, they vary, but it's, it's basically a formula. Is, is that true of the work you do now? Yeah, kind of. I think of I think of content pieces like Legos. So each each Lego in, in the scaffold is a building block, and inside that building block, there's some kind of strategic story, some some narrative that that people feel like, yeah, right, I can see that, I understand that, I I can visualize where that person has been, or that piece of adversity, or that challenge that they're trying to overcome, and then you have to give them something to do. Well, this is not, now this is what you do. This is how you ask a different question. How, this is how you frame uh, a conversation differently. This is how you put yourself physically in a different environment to provoke ideas. This is how you collaborate with somebody in a different way or set up a meeting in a different kind of way. So I, I believe in action. Is there is there currently in your business a scramble to kind of re-tweak and, and redo the products to, you know, use them in this current environment of the pandemic and the crashing economy and the quarantine? Is your business going to change as a result well, of corona? Well, I, I told you right before we, we turned the recording on uh, back in the green room <laughs> that at this very moment, you know, I'm building a studio in a in a cabin in my backyard. I mean, I used to rent studios locally and have professionals come in and you know set up record content. And I'm trying to do it myself. And and that's what I don't you see an explosion of this? Absolutely. Um, I mean, here's John Krasinski reaching tens of millions of people with his do it yourself from home good news network stuff. It's just one example, but. And I have lots of friends who are recording music now and posting it socially. It's wonderful. Well, it's interesting to me that social media was such an enemy for a while, and people associated it with toxic, you know, toxic environments. Whereas now, when we're all in quarantine, social media and the internet has become a safer place, and it's been such a marketplace for just unbelievable creativity and art <laughs> so uh hopefully that'll be a positive change resulting from this experience um you say a couple different places in various things that you've published that we're all standing on the shoulders of giants and i'm curious who are the giants holding up sean hunter <laughs> oh boy um well, I do very much like this idea of borrowing brilliance, you know, this standing on the shoulders of giants kind of thing, um, because if you're if you if you're open to it and you have a kind of a curious open mind, um, you can see and borrow ideas from all different tangential places in the world. Um, who influences me? Oh boy. Um, I can't answer that right now. Well, it seems to uh, me, based on my conversations with you and a lot, your parents seem to have played a substantial role. Is that fair? Oh, boy. Yes, very much. Yeah, and I've, I know a little bit about your mother, and I want to hear some more, but I don't know that much about your father, and he's the one who started 
your first company. What? Tell me about that. Well, he has a saying. Uh, it's a borrowed saying, which is there's no limit to what you can accomplish if you do not care who gets the credit. So he lives those values. He's, he's incredibly selfless. And years ago, I used to say he was working on this pro-social thing, this historic um, preservation, this poverty alleviation. He started this uh, food pantry. Everything I'm telling you is true. And, but then the list kept getting so long that I, I, I asked I, I asked him to update the list of, of <laughs> social initiatives. I'm not I'm not kidding. Right before this pandemic, he had set up a network, a driving network. He lives in very rural Virginia, so this is like uh, the foothills of the Appalachia in Virginia, and, and you know rolling farmlands kind of area. And he just finds needs. And he discovered there's a lot of elderly people who feel isolated and lonely. They can't get to the pharmacy or the grocery store. So he set up a network of volunteers and drivers to do it. Then he's, I'll give you one more and then I'll shut up. <laughs> he, his most recent one, right before the, in the fall, right before this whole pandemic thing, he set up, a, a, he identified elderly or handicapped or infirm people who had house projects they needed done, but they didn't have the money. Like think like cleaning gutters, fixing fences, you know, repairing plumbing, you know, stuff like that. And then he recruited, he got the superintendent of the school board on board and recruited almost a hundred high school students and some chaperones and parents and, you know, professional carpenters and electricians and stuff to oversee it and then disperse them to, I think in the end there was 13 or 14 different projects, house projects. And that's just another example of, uh, it was called neighbor to neighbor was that initiative. Well, yeah, he, your whole family is quite impressive. (laughs) I must say, uh, and I was curious if um, your skill set includes, I guess, uh, rap battling on your bicycle trip, you and some of your companions to spend past the time, I guess, would engage in these rhyming competitions, trading insults in rap fashion. Is that something that you've continued to (laughs) develop? (laughs) <laughs> Wham, bam, kick out the jam, harder than Cynthia Gill can. <laughs> People fawn over Sean from dusk <laughs> until dawn, but when it comes to his lawn, it's Amy who's got the brawn. That's my... Wow! Yeah. That was strong. <laughs> that was strong. Well, Sean Hunter, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Rock and roll, Cynthia. Thank you. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>